This passage speaks of the powerful ministry of the Word of God. So 2 Corinthians 3 speaks of the letters from Christ uh, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And chapter 4 here speaks of people being blinded by the God of this world, but also of people being saved by the gospel. So pick it up in verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For the God who said, let light speak, let light, let there be light, is the God who speaks the gospel. And so what we proclaim when we're making this proclamation is a proclamation that changes the world. It doesn't look like it. It doesn't look that impressive. But it is transformative of individuals and through them of families and through them of communities and through them of society. Think about the treasurer. He wants people to pay taxes, and so he has a whole army of people chasing after taxes. But why he has the army of people chasing after taxes? Why he has a tax legislation so thick you can't read it? Is because people don't want to pay tax. That's why, isn't it? If we ever wanted to pay tax, all you'd need is a single page, one sentence. Give what you think is needed. Full stop. And people would give. But we don't want to. So you've got a whole industry out there of tax lawyers and tax consultants, some of the cleverest people in Australia, spending all their time helping rich people minimise, I won't say avoid because it's illegal, minimise the amount of tax they're going to pay. <laughs> because fundamentally, we don't want to pay tax. Even though... Tax is a wonderful thing. You know, our society is a brilliant society. We have so many things provided for us by our government. It's just, it is absolutely wonderful. My family's deep in medical problems at the moment, but because of our system of taxation, they don't pay anything, nothing. It's just extraordinary, the provisions that have made within our community, because of, but yet we don't want to pay it. So, we have the government with their army and we have our private army fighting them for us so that we won't have to pay any tax. But if we could change the hearts of people, that would change the whole nature of society. And the church is a wonderful illustration of the changed hearts of people. Because we say to the people, give to our community. And hundreds of thousands of dollars come in voluntarily from the hearts of people who want to give to the common good. That is a fantastic system that is operating right under your nose, which is more powerful than anything that any government in Australia can bring about. Changed hearts is a wonderful, wonderful demonstration of divine power. And it comes by teaching the Word of God. Extraordinary thing which is so easy to just overlook. But to be a preacher of the gospel requires you to live consistently with the message you preach. 
Not that the message is dependent upon it, but if the message is true, it will have that effect upon you. See, you can think of Philippians 1, where Paul says in verses 15 to 18 how people preach out of envy and rivalry. They're preaching for bad motives, but he doesn't care because the gospel's still the gospel. Even if it's coming from the wrong motives, it's still the gospel. It's the gospel is the gospel, irrespective of the, the donkey that's preaching it. Or Galatians 1, 6-9, where he talks that very strong passage about if I come or if an angel come, if anybody comes preaching a different gospel, not that there is another gospel, but if any different gospel, let them be damned. Even if I come back to you and preach a different gospel, let me be damned. Because there is a gospel, and there's one gospel, and it's pervertible, and it's deniable, but there is a gospel, and that is the message and the only message by which we are saved and by which we are transformed. For that gospel is at work in us, transforming us to be more and more like Jesus, who is the very subject of the gospel. And so the way we preach, in the, the way we live, will be, should be consistent with the message. So chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. How can we lose heart when Jesus Christ is king? We don't lose heart. But we've renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. How can we have disgraceful underhanded ways when God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the way and the truth and the life? We refuse to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. See, Given the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul's life is transformed by it as he preaches it to others. So let's return to the content of the gospel here in verse 5, the verse that I've chosen to look at, the, the proclamation. Verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves, as your servants, for Jesus' sake. Now we'll take it bit by bit. What we praise is not ourselves, because the gospel's not about us. We're not the subject of the gospel. We're not the important part of the gospel. God can speak through Balaam's ass. So it's not my ministry, my church, my gospel. It's not about me. We have to get rid of self. Indeed, when Jesus calls people to be his disciples, he says, you've got to deny self, take up cross, follow me. So if it's all about me, my career, my profession, my statement, my if it's about me, it's not the gospel. Both in what I say and also in the way I live it. If I'm important, it's not me, it's not the gospel. You know, that's why I'm deeply embarrassed by having philipjetson.com. Uh, you've got to use terms that will attract people so they can find it, but it's a terrible thing when the thing that they attracted and find is your own name. And celebrity preachers, uh, I was in America with uh, a whole bunch of very big world famous celebrity preachers and there's something fundamentally wrong about it. You know, people running after you wanting your autograph, it just is not... We don't proclaim ourselves. That, that's, it's not us. That's not what it's about. But it's G about Jesus Christ as Lord. 
It's, it's always got to be about that particular man of history called Jesus, the Jewish man whose name meant Saviour, who was born of the family of David in Bethlehem, who was crucified, crucified under Pontius Pilate, died and buried on the third day, rose again to sit at God's right hand. That man, it's about him. And it's about him as the Christ, that is the long-awaited Messiah, the, the King of God's kingdom. Uh, who comes into the world to establish his kingdom and by his death and resurrection has done so. And it's about Jesus the Christ as the Lord, the ruler, the owner, the master, the king, the slave, the slave owner rather. We, we don't know what to do with this word Lord anymore because it's not actually a modern English Australian word. We don't have lords anymore. In our fierce egalitarianism, We've evacuated the force of the word Lord. The only Lords we have are the House of Lords and we don't have them anymore. We still have a Queen, but there's a whole bunch of us who don't want to have her either. And anyway, she's 10,000 miles away and doesn't do anything except occasionally visit with a wave and has a birthday. Um, so it doesn't grab us as as a, an image that means all that much to us. A president and prime minister won't do as a translation because we've got the power to get rid of them. Lords and kings you can't get rid of. And so, furthermore, we've been so Christianized that we've got rid of slavery. And we're so Christianized that we've got rid of the idea of lordship as being anything other than service. So, we miss the impact of the word Lord. But Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has risen to the right hand of God, having conquered the evil one and his accusations against his people, having paid for our sins, having turned aside God's righteous anger against, uh, against our sinfulness. He's risen in victory over all to be the ruler of all, the Lord of all, the King of all. And so the Gospel proclamation is summarised as the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Some want to preach Jesus as Saviour, as if he's not the Lord. But if he's not the Lord, he doesn't save us, because he saves us by conquering. And some people want to preach Jesus as Lord without preaching him as Saviour. But if he doesn't save us from our sins, then as the Lord, he will condemn us. You can't have Jesus as anything other than Lord and Saviour. The summary here is as Lord. But then he returns in chapter 4 verse 5 to ourselves. Having said it's not about ourselves, he then tells us what it is about ourselves. With ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. See, if Jesus is the Lord... Who are his slaves? That might seem a strange question to you, but it's a very obvious question to the ancient world. A lord without a slave is not much of a lord. I mean, that's a ridiculous concept. The very concept of lord carries within it the concept of own, uh, owning slaves. And notice, we're the slaves. But notice furthermore, it's not servants, it's slaves. Because of our political correctness, we have translated it out of slavery into service. 
But it's not just recent political correctness, it's a long history of translations at this point. Uh, the King James Version had it, the Revised Version, the NIV, the ASV, the ESV. Uh, J.N. Darby's translation is always worth looking at. I, you can get it on the web and, and frankly I think it's, it's a surprisingly good translation. It's not surprising. He was, he was a man who got rid of everything and started again from square one. And so he has, he's not worried about what the King James Version says. He wants to see what the Greek and the Hebrew says. And uh, he, he uses bondmen. The net translation says we should say bond servants, but the trouble is most people don't know what it means. And I think the ESV footnote has bond servants, doesn't it? Um, uh, the NRSV, which is a translation I really don't like, uh, uh, says slave. And it's right on this occasion. <laughs> but the word doulos is slave, the word diakonos is servant. They're just two different words, just like the word slave and servant are two different words in English. There's no confusion between the words. What's the difference between them? Well, a servant was free and a slave was not free. That's the difference. But slavery was a very multifaceted uh, um, thing in the ancient world. It wasn't just kind of one kind of concept of slave other than not free. But slaves could be anything. That's the beauty of slaves. They were multi-purpose labour units. They, they could do anything for you. They could run your family household uh, accounts. They could, they, whatever you needed to be done, they could be done. Uh, really very useful. They were the engine room of the Roman Empire in many ways. But there were all kinds of slaves with all kinds of different conditions upon their slavery. It's not just one single thing. Our problem was we rightly got rid of the slave trade, the African slave trade of the 18th century, which was just sheer hideous, immoral, evil and wrong under all circumstances. And it was just evil. But the ancient Roman uh, slavery, well, there's all kinds of good things to it and bad things to it, and we still practice some of these good and bad things to this day, but because of the 18th century, we've got rid of the word. We, we just don't like the word. Um, both slaves and servants serve. All slaves were servants, but not all servants were slaves. It just got to do with freedom. Uh, where do we practice slavery today? Well, in lots of places, wherever there's bonded service. That's what the world would have meant by slavery. Uh, the most obvious ones we've got are, pr are prisoners, criminals. We, we lock them up and take away from them their freedoms. They are no longer free. Now, we put a time limit on it and say seven years or 15 years or whatever it is, such as the Bible puts a time limit on your slavery. Uh, we no longer have debtors' prisons because of Charles Dickens and that kind of writing, and that's a good thing, but debtors' prisons continued till the 19th century, and most of the Roman slaves got there through debt. I can't pay my debts, and so I work for you until I've paid off my debt which may not, never be, of course, the case. And so I'm a debtor prison. Another, of course, is, is uh, what do you do with terrorists? Well, the Romans, they, they made them slaves. They didn't have prisons like we did. They left them in the community as slaves. And so 
the convict colony of New South Wales, we had convicts, not slaves. Well, that's rubbish. They were slaves. That's exactly what they were in the ancient world. That's precisely the world wouldn't have the ancient world wouldn't have called them convicts. It would have called them slaves. It was a different world back then. I'm going to talk about a different world back there. But see the concept of slavery? It's a very big, wide concept, but it means not free. It means bonded to the other person. There's more and more of these bonded scholarships now happening, especially for the medicos. So I met a Queensland girl, Christian girl. She was in a bonded scholarship, which meant she was, I think it was 10 years or something like that, she had to serve in country areas of Queensland as a result of receiving this and it was two or three hundred thousand dollars she would have to pay off to be freed from that bonded service. It's still a practice in this day of slavery, we just don't call it that. What we were right was getting rid of the slave trade of Africa because the Bible always condemns slave trading, it doesn't condemn slavery. Hear the difference between those two? It's really important in understanding what's happening anyway. It can't because we're the slaves of Christ. <laughs> so how can it condemn slavery? It calls us to be the slaves of Christ. But more than that, Christ himself became our slave. So Philippians chapter 2, have this mind amongst yourself which you have in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Not servant, as the translations often have it, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Or remember Mark 10, 45, or 44. And whoever would be first amongst you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you remember Jesus taking the towel and washing his, the feet of the disciples? That was the activity of the slave. In fact, Jeremias, who wrote to Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, he said that it was one thing that the Jewish slave was not required to do, that it was beneath the dignity of a Jewish slave to wash the feet. You could only get your Gentile slaves to do that activity for you. I don't know if that's historically true or not, but it's Jeremias who knew much more than I did, although one thing he didn't know, he wrote a book called uh, The Theology of the New Testament, Volume 1. He died. Uh, that taught me something. Never write volume one. You know, write volume two, but never write volume one. That's a great mistake. So, but whose slave are we to be? Look at the text here. We are your slaves for Jesus' sake. As if Paul was the slave of the Corinthians and all to whom he preached the gospel. He was now living for their salvation. He was now laying down his life for the salvation of others. And in that he was following the example of Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 33, just as I would try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Christ enslaved himself to us for our salvation and set the example for the apostle who enslaved himself for the salvation of others and that is the model for us to follow that everything we do is in service of others. So here you see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 11 and 12 we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh so death is at work in us but life in you. 
The reason he was their slaves, though, was for Jesus' sake. Because Jesus is his real Lord, and so he wants us to serve other people. That's what Jesus wants us to do. Jesus wants us to be the slaves of others. That as we lay down our life for the Lord Jesus, he says, thank you very much, now I want you to lay it down for others, that they too may have the salvation that is yours. It's to please and satisfy our real Lord Jesus, who lived and died and rose again, to satisfy him that we will live and die for other people's salvation. It's an obedience to him for whom we live, that we give our lives to others. It's following our master for whom we live and die that we give our lives for others. Yes, the gospel is the gospel even preached by an unbeliever. But a Christian who's going to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ will preach the gospel and live it and die it for other people. This, friends, is the, most, the main issue of evangelism in parish ministry. Today, yesterday and tomorrow. The main issue is Christians led by their evangelistic pastor practicing what they preach in following the Lord Jesus Christ by laying down their lives that given to him for the salvation of other people. However, my topic is for the parish ministry for today, so let me spell out the social changes that have happened in my lifetime since the World War II and transformed the opportunities that we have today. I was born just at the end of the Second World War, so uh, still a war baby and not a baby boomer, I'm glad to say. Uh, now I can give you a broad brush, but that's why in part I've given that, uh, that quadrant article uh, to you uh, to read some other time, not now because it tells the same story that I'm telling you, though it's not written by an evangelical, uh, it's not even written by a Sydney person, it's actually about the Diocese of Melbourne. So he's a Melbourne non-evangelical, uh, I think he's a church organist who great love of music and great love of architecture and church, so he's writing from a very different world than where I'm coming from, but he tells you the same story, because he's, he's lived through it just as I've lived through it. What is it? Well, firstly, we've had a stable democracy all through this period. But though we've had a stable democracy, there's been huge changes governmentally introduced, especially since 1972 with the arrival of Gough Whitlam. And these changes have marginalised us as Christians in parish ministry. Uh, the changes are like this. We've gone to multiculturalism. See, Whitlam brought in the first minister of multiculturalism. What was the culturalism before multiculturalism? It was a monoculture. What was the monoculture? It was British Christian. That's what it was. Uh, not very Christian. Uh, in some ways, not very British, but it was British Christian. That's what it was. You can't change away from that culture to this culture without giving up British Christian. Now, you might be conscious of giving up British, but you'll also be conscious we've given up Christian. Um, in lots of ways, I'll show you. Secondly, there was the change in the Marriage Act that was brought about by Lionel Murphy again in the 1970s, where 
the whole nature of marriage was changed. So this last debate we're having about uh, gay marriage coming up, that is just the end consequence of the change that happened back there in 1975, where the whole nature of marriage was, uh, was gutted. Yeah. Of course, marriage and family life is the basis of suburban life and therefore the basis of parish life. So you can't change marriage without changing parish ministry. And it has been changed back then. Uh, they always say, well, the world didn't come to an end the day after the change happened. No, social changes happen over generations. Certain actions take place and then changes slowly work through the system. A third one was censorship. The great censorship debate changed everything. You see, on the ABC, the, the morning started, we, we have a radio Bible reading every morning on the ABC. Well, when was the last time you heard the Bible read uh, on the ABC? In the evening, when television finished at 11 o'clock, like all civilised television should, uh, you finished up with the bishop giving a 10-minute devotional. Bishop Goodwin Hudson was at. It's an unbelievable... We, we don't live in that British Christian culture anymore. It doesn't happen anymore, you see. But now what we have is hedonism and sensuality. So television doesn't finish, ABC doesn't finish at 11 o'clock. What it does is it gives you uh, pornographic video, music videos until the morning. It's completely different, isn't it? Uh, we've also, by legislation, changed the weekend. We're getting rid of the weekend by having shopping, by having sporting. See, the old world was 12 o'clock, everything shut. Saturday mornings, you'd have the children having your uh, sport. Saturday afternoon, all the adults played their sport and the professional sport happened. And Sunday, nothing happened. Nothing happened Sunday. And then 9 o'clock, the world started again. Well, that's all been gone with shopping hours, sporting hours, just all over the weekend, don't they? Especially on Sundays. And we've introduced such anti-discrimination legislation that the government has now got the power to actually censor us and to imprison us. So we've got a stable democracy, but a democracy that has been running in a non-Christian and anti-Christian direction for a generation or two. During this time, though, the bigger change is the economic growth. You see, the, the men who came back from the war, they were the builders of modern Australia. From 1945 to 1960, they actually changed the face of Australia by the sheer dint of hard work that they and their wives put into creating new families and new life for Australians. Uh, we, we now have... The, the 40s, 50s, uh, my childhood, as I well remember it, there were no computers, of course, but there weren't multiple PowerPoints in every room. Many rooms didn't have a PowerPoint at all. You didn't need a PowerPoint. What would you need a PowerPoint for in a bedroom? What a weird idea. There was, there was just one in the kitchen. It was all that you had. Uh, we didn't have a television. Uh, we didn't have a refrigerator. We didn't have a washing machine. We didn't have a vacuum cleaner. We didn't have wall-to-wall -wall carpet. We didn't have a heater. We used coke fires. We didn't have a hot water service. We didn't have a car. And we were an average middle-class family. Uh, my father ran a little printing business. Um, we were rich enough for him to send us to Scots College by impoverishing himself. But I mean, we weren't poor people. We were that. That's the way it was in the 1950s. It's unimaginable today, thanks to the hard work, not just of the inventive engineers who's created these kinds of things, but the economic growth. Here's a chart, if we can put it up, of cars. 
of passenger cars per 100 popu in the population. See, back in the 1950s, 10, 15%, these are different state lines, which Australia line, I can't see the colour which one it is, but it's all stuck in there. The bottom one's uh, uh, the Northern Territory. But all the others, you can see, it's all the same. Back in the 1950s, 55, less than 20% of the population had a car. Today, over 60%, many of us here have two cars. In, in, in the population change, the car change. Australia now is seventh in the world in per capita car ownership. Um, uh, ahead of us is the United States, of course, it's about fourth, third. The other ones are all tiny little countries, um, uh, Liechtenstein and so on. Actually, with countries over a million population, in other words, real countries, <laughs> only the USA owns more cars per capita than Australians. We are one of the richest nations in the history of humanity. Home ownership's the same, same kind of thing, uh, but the home ownership statistics are very politicised at the moment, so they're not true. You, I love that old quote, um, some individuals use statistics as a drunk man uses a lamppost for support rather than illumination. Um, so I, I looked up Wikipedia on home ownership and they said 33% of households, and I think we've got these coming up every, uh, own their own homes outright. 36% were owners with a mortgage, 24% were renting for a private, 4% from the uh, government. Don't add up the figures because there are other people. But they also go on to say that between uh, June 1996 and June 2010, the percentage of households without a mortgage declined from 43% to 33%. Well, that just shows it's a younger population, as you'll see in a while. And the percentage with, uh, rose, uh, with a mortgage rose from 28% to 36%. So around 1996, we owned our own houses, and now we're buying our own houses. And they say home ownership in Australia decreased to 67% in 2011, which is the lowest it's been in 50 years. That's a complete furphy. Uh, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, I'm not sure whether I've got this as a PowerPoint or not, point out that in 1994 to 26, it dropped from 71% to 69%. But if you go back to 1947, it was 53%. 1954 was 63%, 1961 was 70%, and it's reigned around 70% ever since. You know, the drop from 70% to 67% is a nothing when it used to be 53%. When did home ownership come in? Through the 50s, that's when it came in. Through those incredible people who had lived through the Depression, then they lived through the Second World War, and then they rebuilt the economy of Australia. The ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, says the real change in, in uh, home ownership has actually been caused by uh, the divorce rate. That's what's actually destroyed home ownership in those two or three percents, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Now, what are the social consequences of these economic growth? Because the real change has not been the government, although it's brought in legislation, the real change has been economic growth. And that has transformed the nature of our society away from the parish and therefore made parish ministry difficult. The social consequences of economic growth are materialism, 
hedonism, consumerism and individualism, all of which are anti-Christian, all of which make functioning in community more difficult, all of which therefore has a Christian community, parish ministry, much more difficult. It's led not to just our problem though. See it as a bigger issue than yourself and you can put it in perspective and not get too depressed about it all. You see, it's led to the breakdown of voluntary communal relationships, especially organisations. Now, there's a great man in Harvard, a Jewish professor called Putman. Uh, one of his PhD students, no, postgrad, postdoc students was uh, the man Lee, L-E-I-G-H, who is the shadow treasurer uh, at the moment. He represents Canberra. He was a professor of economics at the University uh, ANU. And uh, Andrew Lee. Uh, his great-great-grandfather was Lee of Lee College, uh, but he himself has become an atheist through the readings of Dawkins. So he's produced a book called Disconnected, and he just traces through, as Putman traces through, the fact that Western societies have, in the last generation, become disconnected that voluntary societies, voluntary organisations have just started to disappear. Uh, you can find the same thing in the writings of Lindsay Tanner, who used to be a Labor politician uh, and who's written on the same kind of lines. And they give you the statistics of if you want it, it's all there available publicly. But there's been a reduction in the number of people in unions, in Boy Scouts, in Girl Guides, in all manner of clubs. The RSL is facing, is facing extinction. It owns these buildings, but it hasn't got the old people to run the, the clubs anymore. Political party membership is way, way down. Now, it's not everywhere and all the times. Some things have come into existence, like Little Athletics. It was founded in 1964. So there are some things that have actually been community voluntary developments, but not many. Now, picture theatres. Every suburb used to have picture theatres. They all disappeared. Um, they were all swallowed up by um, service stations. Then the service stations were swallowed up by home units. But they don't exist, those kinds of uh, picture theatres anymore. Lending libraries. There were several lending libraries in my local suburb. Um, which have all gone. Not public libraries, they were little shops where they had hundreds of books and you went and paid thrippins and you got a book out for the week and then you took it back that next week. It was You've never even seen them. They've all gone. Uh, they were like video shops, <coughs> but they've all gone too. So you remember video shops, I remember lending libraries, but the video shops have gone. Bowling alleys came into existence and there's still some around, but a lot of them have gone out of existence as well. Bowling clubs are going out of existence. Tennis clubs have gone out of existence. Uh, and golf clubs, I understand, are now under economic pressure. I haven't heard of any of them closing yet, but they are under economic pressure. Now, especially though, the breakdown has been in the family and the astonishing rise of divorce which goes with rich countries and the development of de facto marriages and ex-nuptial births. From 1800 through to 1960 the number of births outside of marriage varied between 5 and 8 percent. From 1960 to 1995 it rose up, at the end of the century rather, it rose up to 35 percent. Now I know many of them are in de facto marriages as opposed to de jure marriages, but that's the point, that the society's changed. And it changed through the 1960s dramatically. But 
In particular, economic growth undermines geographically based communities, aka parishes. That's the world we've been living in and are living in. And when the newspapers say, oh, no one's going to church anymore, the church numbers are going down, there used to be four daily newspapers in Sydney, two in the morning, two in the evening. <laughs> now there are two in the morning and they are getting less and less and there's talk of one of them closing and only being produced on oh, Saturdays. So their role in society has been gutted just as much as ours has. What are the parish consequences then of this economic growth? Well, the 1950s parish, the locals on Sunday walked to church. Uh, Australians were largely a God-fearing group of nominals. Uh, the denominational distinctive was the important part because it was an ethnic marker. I was a Scot, so I'm a Presbyterian. I come from English stock, so I was C of E. I was an Irishman, so I'm RC. For us, the Book of Common Prayer, the King James Version, was the same pattern all across the suburbs. The clergy were relatively interchangeable because all they had to do was be faithful to the books. That's all they had to do. You didn't think about growing your church. That was an irrelevance. You just maintained your church. Sunday school was for the children of the suburb, not for the children of the congregation. In the Sunday school I went to, hardly anybody had active Christians in church. Amongst the 38 Sunday school teachers, when I was the superintendent, only one came from an evangelical Bible-believing family. It was the, we were converted in Sunday school because evangelism, parish evangelism, was the evangelization of the people in church, the evangelization of the children in the Sunday school, of the youth group that were there. Evangelicals worked in the church. They didn't run the church. The committed went morning and evening. The uncommitted went once a month or so. But there were so many there that a once a month congregational attendance still gave you a good church full of people. Because 40% of the population would go once or twice a month or once or twice a year. And so the churches had people in them. But only the really committed went morning and evening. The church ran social clubs, cricket clubs, tennis clubs, football clubs. But the evangelicals evangelised church members. We never bothered with the Roman Catholics or with... Well, we did if we got an opportunity, but we had nothing to do with them. We, we were just evangelising the many Anglicans who were nominal Anglicans. 1960 to 2000, I call the great pruning. TV destroyed Sunday night church, except for the youth. 1959, 150,000 people turned out to hear Billy Graham. 1964, 150,000 turned out to hear the Beatles. That's the sudden change that happened in the 60s. The death of the British Christian culture happened with the collapse, therefore, of a particularly the British church, the, the Anglicanism. The Melbourne statistics in that article are terrifying, but they're true. 58, they had nearly 70,000 communicants. 2,000, they had nearly 40,000. Now they have half of that. But we saw the death here in Sydney of the Sunday school movement. Because no longer was it the community children coming, it was now the children of the congregation coming which then led to the death of the youth clubs. No longer were there hundreds in every church youth fellowship, many of whom, most of whom weren't Christian. Now there were only the Christians in the youth group. And that led to the death of the Sunday night church 
And of course, if you have the death of the Sunday night church in one generation, you have the death of the family church in the next generation, as churches around the diocese closed up. However, Sydney bucked the system. That's Sydney. If, you, if the Melbourne pictures were there, it'd be infinitely worse. It'd be just absolutely horrify you. Sydney has bucked the system, and that article says it's bucked the system. How? Well, we've stayed stationary in a sense. So here's the graph of the population of Sydney versus the clergy and the parishes and the sites. And you'll see that while our parishes and sites are dropping, the number of clergy were increasing. Or even more startling is look at the graph of the diocesan finances from 1960 to 2010. You see, all the income into the diocese, not where we spend it, all the income from kinds of resources from the... Uh, there have been nothing. But look at the parish growth. So while the diocesan central funds have really been pretty well static, look what happened to the parish giving during that period of time. So we ha what's happened then? It's the pruning. It's the pruning of the nominals. How did it happen? Well, evangelicalism. You see, we kept evangelising the youth. And evangelicals give money freely instead of having fundraisers. And we've stuck to our guns theologically and mark ourselves off as different to society. But if you mark yourself off as the same as society, then there's no reason to go to church. And you can accommodate the society and you'll get a short-term gain, but you get a long-term loss. We refused to accommodate to our society on a whole range of issues. Second, so evangelicalism kept us alive. Secondly, there was a network, ministries kept us alive. Scripture Union, Katoomba Convention, CMS, and CMS Summer School, and things like that, which others don't have. Because we did engage multiculturalism, because as evangelicals, we're more interested in Christianity than the British Empire. And so we engaged ourselves in, in all kinds of multicultural activities to reach people and because we developed student work. So there were certain kinds of things like university work. But one of the key things that kept us alive was more College and Broughton Knox. For more College, Broughton taught us that churches are gathering to hear God's word, not the maintenance of the British Empire to worship God in a British way. That difference was extraordinarily impactful for what we did in church. And so we reformed the way in which we ran church. Prayer book disappeared, robes disappeared, robed choirs disappeared. The whole kind of pattern that you did in the 1950s disappeared. Oh, there were remnants of it in this church and remnants at 8 o'clock in the morning, but basically we turned to a Bible teaching gathering of God's people rather than a continuation of the history of our British heritage. Whereas in all the rest of the dioceses of Australia, they've retained their British heritage history worshipping services. Broughton did us a wonderful kindness, but with a great cost. It turned us into church pastors instead of parish evangelists. We lost sight of the community around about us as we poured all our efforts into looking after and growing our own church. And that has been the real challenge of the 21st century.
how do we get our heads out of running our own church as a gathering of God's people to hear God's word into reaching our parish around about us with the gospel when the parish has walked away. The parish doesn't function as a parish anymore. It's not just, it doesn't function as a church-going thing. It doesn't function anymore. The suburbs don't function anymore. That's why the government is now amalgamating municipalities, because the suburbs aren't suburbs anymore. The local football team is an irrelevance. Individualism rules. No one knows who their neighbours are anymore. It's a different world. And the model we had didn't work. We got onto a better model, thanks to Broughton, out of the theology of the church. But we've locked ourselves then into what is becoming a ghetto. When the very gospel that holds us as a church is the gospel of reaching the world with the gospel. Now I've got point three opportunities, but I'll carry it over till tomorrow. Come back to that tomorrow. Thank you, Philip.